Oh, Nassau. This afternoon, we return to settling the mind, settling the mind in its natural state. Some of you still find the practice rather elusive, and it is. It's subtle. You have all these gradations, gradations of grasping and so forth. Sometimes hard to tell whether you're really doing it right or whether you're just daydreaming. But I'd like to, again, try to make it accessible by these little steps as we have the different steps, the multiple steps in mindfulness of breathing, the multiple steps in developing lucid dreaming versus just trying to develop dream recall, increasing dream recall. That's a good first step. And so likewise here, uh, nothing really new this afternoon, so I don't need many words. Uh, what we'll be doing is going first to the body and developing or just applying that quality of mindfulness that's very attentive, very engaged, attending to the somatic field, the space of the body, and whatever somatic events arise within that of earth, water, fire, air, sensations of the breath. Uh, but again, sometimes an image, more the kind of the poetic side, the what is it, right brain side, something more of imagery can help in terms, once and again, of getting the ambience right. Because it's so easy to be striving too hard, pushing too hard, getting caught into anxiety. Am I doing it right? Maybe not. I could be doing it better, and all of that. So now let's br very briefly return uh, to that, that image, that whole series of images, but now just one clip in the images of going off to Tahiti with your air mattress, but now just focusing on one little clip. And imagine there you are out there beyond the break, beyond the waves, crashing out where there's just the gentle swell, and you're lying on your back now, but you're gazing up into the sky, okay? And it's just very pleasant, not burning hot. So again, an ambience of warmth, but it's pleasant, it's refreshing. You really like being here. And there you are just lying on your back, a nice big air mattress, so your arms are 30 degrees out, and while you're very present in your body, enjoying the warm sunlight and the, the freshness of the sea and the gentle rise and fall of the, of the sea, of the ocean, where your attention is is the sky. Now you're gazing right up into the sky. And you see cloud formations coming and going, maybe a rainbow arising, a little squall of rain over there, some birds flying through, maybe an airplane flies through, maybe some insects fly through. And there you are, just enjoying the gentle rise and fall, rise and fall. But you just got this whole space in front of you, and never knowing what's coming up. And of course, the quality of awareness is just being present, mindful, attentive, not trying to fix anything, not identifying with anything. But again, as you're attending to the sky and whatever arises in it, you do have quite a clear sense of your body and the rise and fall of the body. Okay, that ambience. Okay, that's the ambience. I'll give one more image, again, a familiar one, but with a twist. You're all familiar now of the, of the, of the falcon in midair kiting into the wind. So you're familiar with that one. But imagine the, the, the falcon is a baby falcon, and it hasn't quite got the hand, hang of it yet. And it's, kind of, it's being swept forward and off to the right, and it's kind of, I don't know quite how to do this, you know, and you're kind of like, like that. Uh, well, it could be helpful for the baby falcon, my baby falcon's here, uh, to be holding on to a, to a branch. You actually have something to hold on to. And you face into the wind. Maybe even you hold your wings up, but you are holding on to the branch. And there it is. The wind is coming in. It comes from the left. It comes from the right. Strong, weak, and so forth. And there you are, kind of pretending as if you're kiting into the wind. But you have something to hold on to, a branch. And the branch is swaying. It's going up and down, up and down. Okay. So you see where it's going. And that is, first of all, let's just hold on to the branch. Or let's just be present on that air mattress. And that is just bring this quality of awareness, 
very attentive, clearly something to know. So we come back to Andreas's point earlier. Do you know something? Are you engaged with something? Are you just kind of a little bit uncertain and nebulous and so forth? Here's something to know. There are sensations of solidity. They are knowable. Fluidity, not a whole lot, just in the mouth. But then warmth, certainly. Movement, definitely. So there's all kinds. And then the sensations of the breath, of course. They're part of that field. And so as you're just attending there and saying, okay, now what's the quality of awareness? Right in the present moment, free of distraction, free of grasping as much as I can, which is to say none of these sensations arising in the body need to be labeled, categorized, cogitated upon. None of them need to be grasped onto his eye or mind. They're just sensations arising and passing in the field of the body. And it's not that hard. It's not that hard to attend to them, right? It's rather grounded. There's an earth element. That's about as grounded as it gets. And so we've got to get into the flow there. Okay, this is something I can do. This is something I can do. Okay, just resting there, attending to the sensations arising from moment to moment. And then once we've gotten a bit grounded there, then we'll open the eyes, shift the attention over to the space of the mind. But rather than just throwing you up into the midair and saying, okay, now start kiting, if you're very accustomed to the practice, if you find it quite easy, easy, that is, you really can do it, then good, just go kiting, right? But if you're more still the baby falcon, then say, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to be kiting, but I'm going to hold on to my body too. And that is with the, with the kind of the back of your mind, a peripheral awareness, go ahead. Feel at rest. Feel like you're still lying there on the air mattress. You're in your body. You're feeling the, the ebb and flow of the breath, the sensations. So there you are. You're grounded. You've got, some, you've got a point of orientation. But with that point of orientation, again, as if you're lying on the back on the air mattress, now give most of your attention to that space of the mind and whatever's coming up. And if you ever start getting spacey, not quite sure what you're attending to, well, then just come back and rest in the body again. And then you can actually toss up a bird, you know, toss up a thought, an image, what have you. But you've got something to be grounded in, okay? Now, clearly that's transitional. But if it's still, you still find settling the mind quite elusive, frustrating, not quite sure whether you're doing it right or not, just not feeling, getting the hang of it yet, I think this could help you get the hang of it. And then slowly, slowly, then at your own leisure, if you're the falcon, you can let go of the branch and say, hey, I can kite. Or you can slip off the air mattress and just you know, start floating, start levitating. Go up into the sky and just be aware of the sky. Okay? So now that I've given this a prologue, I don't need to talk much when we're doing it. So you pretty much know what to do. Let's jump right in. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states as you've done before.
Now let your awareness permeate the whole field of your body, mindfully present, attending to whatever tactile events, including feelings of pleasure, of discomfort, that arise within this somatic field, sensations of the earth, water, fire, air, whatever arises from moment to moment, simply attend to its nature, without seeking to modify it, without preference, without grasping. Sustain the flow of mindfulness without distraction or grasping.
Now let your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze vacant. And with respect to the somatic field, your sustaining quality of mindfulness in which in the felt you let there be just the felt. That is, in the tactilely perceived, there was just the tactilely perceived without overlay, projection, designations, and so on. So in the same fashion now, direct your attention, the focus of mindfulness, to the space of the mind and whatever arises within that space, and in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. Sustain the flow of mindfulness, intermittently monitor that flow with introspection, checking up in your posture, your breathing, and your attention, applying the remedies as needed. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Mono Lasso. So I'll do the triangle again, one read, and then go around the hemispheres and back. So here's one. So here's one from Anonymous. I have a Dharma friend who has both physically and mentally had and is still having a very difficult life. Lots of unkindness and negativity towards him or her. Lots of sickness too. He or she is, is though a very sincere and inspiring Dharma practitioner and I have a good relationship with this person. <coughs> I have discovered something very scary during good peaceful conversations with this person. Sometimes I feel like I would want to very strongly hit this person. It is scary to see such thoughts, as I usually don't have violent thoughts, and I don't see any logical reason why I should, should have with this person. Where does something like this come from, and why with this person? I tend to feel in these situations strongly ashamed and guilty, but this is not a helpful attitude towards myself. So how would you suggest I react? Very good. I think you're not alone. I think you're not alone. Um, whether it's thoughts, impulses of violence, or thoughts or the other side of the fence, thoughts, impulses of lust, craving, just looking at somebody and, you know, lust comes up. Or other impulses as well. They happen. And even if we just look within the context of this life, I mean, the psyche and the subconscious, that's an awful lot of material. We've all been here for at least a couple of decades. So just imagine, and, and the input you've had from movies, from all types of media and so forth, I mean, this is, we're carrying an awful lot of baggage you know, from all kinds. If we consider, in terms of just entertainment, if we took away all the sex and all the violence, exactly how much is left? Not a whole lot, I think, right? Silly comedy and some very good, and some very good drama, some very intelligent comedy and so forth. But take out craving and hostility and there's not an awful lot left. And what is left is delusion. <laughs> now, now we have all of entertainment. <laughs> you know? So all of this is just simply to say what happens to us just in terms of just appearances coming in, let alone our life trajectory, the experiences we've been through, some of them quite tough on occasion, and so forth. So given all the, all the kinds of seeds that are stowed in, in the subconscious just in this lifetime, and now let's consider, now that we've done that, so there's the, kind of the, the secular perspective, context has its legitimacy, and now let's just, you know, try and emphasize how about the Buddhist context. We engage with the person. People sometimes meet and it's love at first sight. This is the woman I want her to bear my ch children, and on, and the, on the flip side, hopefully, or maybe. But the point being that sometimes there can be a very strong connection immediately, romantic connection. I have met people where I meet somebody, the first time I meet them, I feel this person could be a friend for life. Such a strong connection of trust, confidence, admiration, Meaning, oh, here's a person I just, I think this could be an open-ended collaborative relationship, warm friendship, maybe really do big projects together. And that just, it's immediately there. And I can't look at it. I, I can't figure it out. Oh, yeah, this is why. But it does happen, and I think I'm probably not alone here. And it may happen that we just meet some people, and immediately there's, we're kind of on edge, feeling uneasy. Or relationship like this. Here's a person who's, this person that when, so let's, Jack and Jill, I'm, I'm, I just find it easier to use names. Jack is the writer of this, of this message, and Jill is the person who's quite difficult, a lot of problems. Jill is, is clearly dealing with a lot of problems, 
but there is this relationship between Jack and Jill. How much is going on karmically? How much coming from a very subterranean place, from the substrate consciousness, from the seeds stored there, how much of that might percolate up in the midst of a conversation? Might Jill have killed Jack in the last life, or brutalized, or harmed, or robbed, or beaten up, and so forth? We don't, the answer is we don't know. We just don't know. And there we are. So that's clear, undebatable. But might those impulses be there? And might these be catalyzed by conversation coming up? The answer is it could be. It could be. So whether it's, whatever it is, I'm not going to elaborate too much more here, but the impulses can be coming from all over the place. So now we need, now we need a response. Open up some of the mystery, some of the depth, some of the scope, whether it's coming from television, past lives, merely your subconscious, transference. Transference, you've had an experience with another person and then transferring that over here and then having strong emotional reactions coming up that actually have very little to do with this person but have a lot to do with that person and it was just transferred from one to the next. And I have seen that. Psychologists call it transference. Oh, it's big time. It's really big. Okay? So that just opens up the complexity of the problem but now we need a solution. Oh, there is a solution. There really is. The first thing is settle your mind in this natural state. How timely and that these impulses come up. They can be all kinds. They can be violent. They can be hostile, malevolent. They can be craving, greedy, lusty, envious, crazy, wacko. They can be all kinds of things. You know, what isn't stored in your substrate conscious? Well, I can tell you, direct realization of emptiness, Buddhahood, nirvana. Okay, some things not, are not stored. But in terms of samsaric, samsaric, oh, the Buddhist teachings say, look, we've experienced all the six realms already. You've already achieved shamatha sometime in the past. You just didn't carry through. You've been all the lower realms, of course. You're definitely a frequent visitor. If you had frequent flyer miles, oh, man, could you get a lot of free mileage out of it. And then also, you know, a fair amount of time in the fortunate realms, you know, and you've been up to the form realms and the formless realms. They were dead ends. You're just like a yo-yo going, woo, and then back to someplace else. But there it is. We've had the whole array. Imagine if little percolations are coming up from hell realms. Oh, man, they could be, what would they be besides violent? So given this, when stuff comes up, don't take it too personally. Don't take it personally at all, as a matter of fact. So some rage comes up. As long as you're not coupling with it, cognitively fusing with it, latching onto an, an intention, okay, now you're in trouble. If, you're, if this thought of violence, wanting to pat, smack this person, if you see not only the impulse, but thinking, where are my brass knuckles? That's a problem. As soon as it's an intention, okay, now you're accumulating karma. Now you're responsible. Whatever it is, now you're responsible. For good or bad, it's all even. But as soon as there's intention, that's the very core of karma. Okay, now you're in it. Now you've bought in. You've invested in that company. But otherwise, it's just like a salesman coming to your door. Do you want to be violent? Do you want to be lusty? And you just see it coming up. And when you see that coming up, just rest your mind in this natural state. Impulse is coming up. I recognize you. The Buddha, even after his enlightenment, this is the Pali Canon, after his perfect enlightenment, still would be visited by Mara. And Mara would come to the Buddha and say, Gautama, you're not really enlightened. You're fooling yourself and so forth. He tried to trick him, tried to do his devious tricks. And all the Buddha did, I mean, I think there was a pretty uniform response. What did the Buddha say? When Mara appeared, I mean, actually appears like some demonic apparition. And what was the Buddha's response? Mara, I see you. And Mara always felt disappointed. Oh, 
that I can catch you off guard. Better luck next time. Okay? So if that's all the Buddha needed, that's all we need. Mara, I see you. Brutal impulse, violence coming up, lust coming up, whatever it is, I see you. And you don't even need to say it. All you need to do is do it. I see it. Note it. Observe its nature without cognitive fusion. And let it flow on by. And when you see, what was the other business? Or, oh, there it is. I want to get your own words. Because this is very well articulated. Or, ashamed and guilty. So when you feel shame and guilt, say, aha, I see you. I see you. Shame, I see you. You have no basis in reality. Guilt, oh, you're back again. What are you doing here? You're not welcome. But you don't even need to brush it away. It will self, it will self dissolve. It will just evaporate if you don't cognitively fuse by it. So whether it's violence, whether it's shame, or whether it's guilt, just let it come up and just right on through. It really can work. And once you've done that, and the little bout is finished, the impulse has risen, and just like a wave coming up, then it dissolves back into the sea of your space of your mind. Then practice compassion. Because, of course, I don't know who this person is. I'm not, I'm not going to pursue it, of course. But clearly this person is deserving of compassion. So then, even in the midst of the conversation, when you find that you're not disturbed, when you're kind of back to equilibrium, as you attend to the person, breathe in. Keep on breathing in. May you be free. May you be free. Of the suffering, a lot of physical sick sickness, that hurts. We've all been sick. Mental disturbance, that hurts. We've all been there. The underlying causes, bound to trace back to delusion, craving, and hostility, they always do. And so just breathe it in. Breathe it in. And then when you feel like breathing out, do that too. So there's definitely a solution there. But really, as much as you can, just recall. I'm, I'm utterly convinced of this tr truth. And that is, we are not morally, not morally, not karmically responsible for every bit of junk that arises in the space of the mind. Can't be. If Buddha wasn't responsible for Mara appearing in the space of his mind, why should we be responsible if Mara appears in the space of our mind? Because he was pure. Right? So relax. Don't take it personally. Don't own it. Just be aware. Ah, you came in. Okay. So. Left hemisphere, anything coming up, especially from hands that haven't been up for a while. Joe, you've been up for a while? And if there's another, not, no, no, not just yet. I just want to see if there's any hand that hasn't been up for a while. Okay, yeah, we haven't heard from John for a while. Is there any, is there any mention um, in, the Buddhist, in Buddhist teachings of uh, having the mouth open? Can't quite. Close. Having the uh, breathing through the mouth, um, I'm thinking about the first two, uh, first two uh, breathing meditations. Breathing meditations, yeah. Uh, for mindfulness of breathing, um, I've never seen in the, in the Pali Canon or the Theravada, uh, Theravada commentaries a, an explicit reference of full body breathing like we do. So if it's not there, then they're not going to say why, you'll do, why you do that, have your mouth open or closed, since they're not mentioning that anyway. Now, does the Buddha speak of lying down as being a suitable position for practicing meditation? Yes, he does. It's in the Satipatthana Sutta, four postures, right? But not specifically as a really formal practice of achieving, practicing shamatha, although that does come up. That does come up. 
uh, superimposition does come up in the Vimutimaga and the Visuddhimaga, explicitly in Vimutimaga and implicitly in the Visuddhimaga, two of the great, great, great classics, where they refer to that, but as far as I know, no reference to mouth open or closed. Generally speaking, mindfulness of breathing, mouth closed, uh, but again, some people have uh, problems with the cartilage in the nostrils or sinus problems or broken nose or what have you. I mean, that's not always a free passageway. It happens, right? And so, should, should there be some problem, congestion, difficulty of breathing or what have you, then sure, go for breathing through the mouth. Now, breathing through the mouth does explicitly come up in other teachings, as in settling the mind, awareness of awareness, and Dzogchen meditation, Mahamudra meditation. And there you'll find some of the greatest masters have the, the mouth a little bit open and the breathing through the mouth for that total sense of release, relaxation, ease of the breath coming in and out. Okay? So that'll be fine. That would be okay. Really, no problem with that. I will, I will now take a stand, express an opinion. Uh, and that is for full body awareness, phase one, rise and fall of the abdomen, phase two. Uh, if you just find it's better, if the mouth is open, then go for it. And that will take you to stability, but not very far along vividness, right? Now, if you want to go up to the nostrils, then of course. Then only come there if that's a clear passage and you can do it. And if you can't, then do another practice. Either come back here, but if that gets to be too easy, just coming back to the abdomen or full body, then you're going to want to explore another method if breathing through the nostrils and attending to the sensations there doesn't work for, any, for whatever reason, including physiological ones. Okay? All clear? Okay, good. Anybody on the right side who has not had a hand up for a while? Michael, sure. Thank you, Amita. A uh, question to the uh, stretching of the mind. Uh, settling the mind? Stretching. Stretching, stretching the, the mind, mind, as in mindfulness of, uh, awareness of awareness? What do you mean by stretching mind? Uh, we did the, yeah, of awareness of awareness. The we, last phase. We, yeah. We went to both yes, gotcha. uh, right and left. Quite so. And then uh, you said, said downwards, but downwards means more inwards. No, huh? no. Downwards it means, means down below your butt. Ah. Just as upwards means up above your head. This is a practice, I mean, you can do it in the supine position, but I think they really intended it to be while sitting. So up means straight above your head. Right is right, left is left, and down is down below you. But now, of course, you're not tunneling through the earth, because down below you, it's just down below you in the space of your mind. So there's no earth to excavate. And then you just go down as far as you like. Okay, clear? And forwards, backwards? Forward, forward back didn't, didn't come up. I'm, I just want to follow what Padmasambhava said, and I'm doing my best. He, in that phase, he doesn't refer to forwards and backwards. Um, and I think it's kind of implicitly there when in the previous oscillations, even though we don't want to go really linear, when we're inverting into consciousness and releasing, inverting into the agent and releasing, inverting into the observer and releasing, there's bound to be something of a sense of an oscillation like a pendulum. But, we, but what I would suggest, having done that, that we don't let it be that narrow. Okay? But I think that's how he's covering it, that that's already there. But in my experience, rather than having it a straight linear forward, backward, forward, backward, I find it more helpful, and I think it's more in the spirit of the practice, to have it again like a balloon that expands in all directions, or like a sea anemone, the, the, the crustacean, that just opens up like a flower, opens, and then closes back in again. Okay, like that. 360 degrees. Good? Okay, okay, good. So I'll read one now. 
Okay, here's one, fairly brief. You mentioned in passing that you were reading of the news on the internet as a way to practice the four measurables. Yep. This would seem to be an excellent way for many of us to widen and deepen our involvement with bodhicitta. Could you please elaborate on this practice? Yeah, I can, I'm, but I would suggest on the whole, better not to do it now. I have to be engaged. I think I probably sent 30 emails today because I have a lot of pots cooking in various ways. So that's just what I have to do. It's part of my job. I'd, I'd love to be, frankly, believe me, I'd love to be just turning off my internet for eight weeks at a time, but I can't do that now. But I will be doing that when I disappear, do my disappearing act, my hat trick next December. Then I'm going to be out of communication. But I can't now. So for me, then, checking, reading the news on the internet uh, is really helpful, and it's not really, I don't find it disturbing. It's helpful. Uh, but sure, when this retreat's over, now, for, for the time being, you just run the internet of your own imagination, and that should keep you busy. Uh, and then, of course, you can apply the four measurables with respect to the people, sentient beings you encounter here. That's probably enough. But especially with respect to the news. But frankly, it can be done, since the whole point of this really is the transformation, the cultivation of your heart. It can be done even while watching a very well-crafted movie. If you're watching, there's no reason to watch bad movies. So let's, let's, but there are some good movies. There are good things on television occasionally. And so even if it's fictitious, sometimes, as they say, uh, what, fact is stranger than fiction, or fiction may be very, very clearly depicting fact, even though that particular scene is, is, has no basis in reality, or that whole gradient, um, what, history-inspired dramas and so forth and so on. So there's a smooth spectrum there, from flat-out fiction to here it is, this is live coverage of such and such happening. But what I'm saying here very shortly is that even if it's a fiction, a really powerful novel, or of course watching a, a film or something on television, uh, it can arouse. It can arouse loving kindness. And even if you're attending to an actor playing a role, uh, you're not really developing compassion for the actor. If there's salary, they don't need that much compassion. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at least not for the suffering of suffering. Um, now I speak in jest, but no, you're, you're getting into the role and you're developing compassion for the characters depicted in the drama. And even though it's fiction, your compassion can be completely authentic. Just as in a dream, your emotions are completely authentic. They're no less real than your emotions in the waking state, even though it's just a movie. It's a three-dimensional movie, right? Your dream. But the emotions, the loving kindness you experience in a dream, that can be as much as the loving kindness in the waking state. And certainly the mental afflictions, they, boy, they're just as real in the dream as in the waking state. But if we come back to the explicit question, so there you are watching news or documentaries on recent events. But frankly, it could be even old events, watching some tragedy from Second World War, ethnic cleansing here that took place in the 1990s, and so forth. It doesn't have to be really here and now. One can cultivate compassion, loving kindness, virtues that have been done in the past. Great. There's no reason whatsoever why we shouldn't develop empathetic joy for virtues of the virtue of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, right? For Milarepa, going off to the caves and living as a yogi, a singing, a singing yogi, you know? There's no reason we can't practice em empathetic joy, delighting in somebody's virtue a thousand years ago. Why not? Virtue is virtue, right? But there we are, finally coming back, whether it's the, the evening news, whether it's documentaries, um, whatever's coming up, I really think without exception, as it's coming up, and now we're dealing with something, let's say this is 
This is real. It's as if we, we develop clear audience and clairvoyance. That's the advantage of television and you know, satellite TV and all of that and documentaries that show live. Um, whatever comes up, if it's portraying people who are really struggling to find happiness, to succeed, to find, find joy and satisfaction, and you see them, and, and they, maybe you, you see them interviewed, interviewed, what are you aspiring for? Interviewing young college kids, whoever it may be. Love and kindness, of course. And then so often the news is bad, and it's bad because there are so many sad things taking place and so many injustices in the world. And so when, you, when, uh, when there's news coverage focusing on, let's just call a spade a spade, evil, the enactment of greed, of duplicity, of exploitation, of malice, of hatred. And we have so many examples, I don't need to give even one. But when we see that, focusing on that, it's so easy, of course, just to feel righteous indignation, contempt, loathing, hatred, violence, and so forth. Arr. Okay, and then you're perpetuating the cycle. Somebody could show a movie of you having that reaction, and they could be really pissed off at you, and then we just have this perpetual motion machine, you know, mental afflictions giving rise to mental afflictions. But if you kick, you know, get off that syndrome, that habitual syndrome, and when you're attending even to the enactments, the representations, of mental afflictions, let alone suffering of any kind. Of course, it's compassion. And then we do see successes, some of them really noble. And the press can be very good at covering that. I've seen that in interviews. I saw Jane Goodall interviewed recently. Just seeing her on the screen, oh, made me so happy. Such virtue, such virtue, so good. And I, would, I love to see the interviewer also. He shows, showed her properly such respect. And then she was just herself. So beautiful, so, so around, naturally, what can you do? You see this, this woman who has lived such a life of virtue. And, then, and she's a scientist, of course, why not? But brought so much virtue, benevolence, kindness into her scientific inquiry. She just wasn't studying animals. She was studying her friends, right? She was studying her friends. So good, so good. And then working with her Jane Goodall, I'm pitching her again, and I have no qualms about that. But she, her whole foundation is not to preserve the chimpanzees in Africa. It's help, helping human beings on this planet. You're not another primate. So she's keen on primates. But just watching the interview was, was inspiring. It made me just delight. I, I delighted in the virtue of the interviewer, that he showed such appreciation for what she was offering. She showed appreciation. It was just so, so good. And then equanimity. Equanimity is always good. But whatever comes up, cultivating those four, and then out of those four, as we're now moving into the four greats, the four greats, okay? And we're actually beginning, and actually deliberately, with great compassion. We ventured in that, into that this morning. We'll continue tomorrow morning and the next. Now we're moving into this bodhisattva mode, into the bodhisattva mode, where it moves beyond aspiration to intention. That is, it of course includes aspiration, but it's like a cumulus cloud that starts with aspiration and then fully blossoms in intention and resolve. And so as you're attending, I mean, if there's one message that uh, resounds through all of the news and documentaries that I witness, if there's one message that is common to all of them, the message is, boy, do we need more Buddhas. Boy, do we need more enlightened people, more people with bodhicitta, more people with realization of emptiness, more people who have realized rikpa, more virtue. That's what we really need. Even a dictatorship could be a very happy country. Even di dictatorship. 
even totalitarian dictatorship, could be really very happy if that dictator is bodhisattva and is always attending only to the well-being of the person he's serving. But he has such wisdom. And for whatever reason, I'm, I'm, not, gonna try, I'm not trying to justify dictatorship. That's not my style. That's not my choice. But even if it were that, and you had a bodhisattva on top, well, this dictator would just be doing everything possible to take care of everyone, human and non-human, in the, in the country. Right? So it could be a lot worse. Better a bodhisattva dictator than a bunch of jerks running a democracy. But of course, we don't know any countries like that, do we? <laughs> so there we go. So all of this then, what all of that having, you know, tilling the field of the four immeasurables, then all of this can easily then give rise to great compassion, great loving kindness, great mudita, and great mudita, empathetic joy, and great equanimity. And there you are, there's the real launching pad. There's the ignition ready to go into takeoff to bodhicitta. So there are some people, I mentioned one yogi up in Shimla, in northern India. Remember him? The one that is so good at dream yoga that he just spends as much time sleeping as he possibly can. Yeah, she's already, she's figured it out. Some of you are thinking, I'm really good at watching television. <laughs> I'm going to go home and I'm just going to go into television samadhi as much as I can every day. I'm just going to watch television. I'm going to become a television bodhisattva. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. I'm not encouraging it. But uh, if people can achieve deep realization by way of dreams, which after all, what is that except for 3D television? And then why, what's wrong with HD television? Which you can turn on and off as you like. You know? And also, you can actually, you're lucid because you can change channels. Right, cool. Okay. So that's, that's that. I think we did, dealt with that. Yep. So, and where were we? We just checked out right. Anything on the left? Going, going oh, oh, very good. João. From Brazil. Portugal. 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 <laughs> um, in the beginning of this cycle, you talked about the relationship between our beliefs and our motivation. Yes. Well, not so much belief. I believe that Jupiter has moons. I don't think it's ever influenced any decision I've ever made, except for to comment, Jupiter has moons. So that's a belief, but it has very little impact. Right? Convictions, maybe. Yeah. So the, the, word, the word is view. The way you're viewing reality. The way you're viewing reality. So it's views, values, way of life. That's a powerful triad. So yes, do I believe that the way we view reality, and of course that will be influenced by our beliefs for sure, but it's not synonymous with our beliefs. Do I believe that it has a, that has a strong bearing on meditation? Definitely yes, as it has a strong a bearing on our values and therefore our desires and our motivations. Okay, carry on. So with that on the basis, um, how do you think we should uh, prioritize the study of Buddhist uh, philosophy? before or during or how to balance before jumping into the practice or balancing during it uh, just not to just jump off straight to the meditation without have the proper founding right. foundations right I'll, sto I'll start with a very often quoted statement by Sakya Pandita again he's like a Tsongkhaba he's like a Longjem Rabjamba uh, one of his incredible minds a, a great scholar a contemplative bodhisattva enlightened being and he said, trying to meditate without having studied, without having heard teachings, having really learned Dhamma. 
He said, it's like trying to climb a mountain with no hands. So off goes the microphone. <coughs> it's qu quoted very, very often. Uh, on the one hand, and now I'll give another one. This is from the Holiness Dalai Lama, present one. He said, it's, there are cases that gives an analogy first. It's straight from the Dalai Lama. He said, you can take a, a piece of raw yak hide, but untanned. So it's just straight from the, it's just a piece of yak leather, but it's not been tanned, prepared yet, right? And he said, if you take this piece of uncured or untanned hide leather, and what do Tibetans do? Well, they, got a, they have a, a bounty of yak butter. I mean, yak butter, you can smell it all over Tibet. Yak butter kind of, ah, it must be a Tibet. And so they got yak, well, that's what they would use to, to work leather. So they take the yak butter, and then they would work it in, work it into the leather to get, make it malleable, because it's quite stiff. This is untanned, uncured leather. But they take the, the yak butter and get it in there and work it and rub it and, and go, you know, just get that yak butter really to totally saturate the yak hide until it becomes totally malleable, you know. So it's really very now very, very well cured or whatever, cured leather, right? And then it's got all that yak butter in it, all that oil. You can use it to hold water. You can hold, to hold sampa, parched barley flour. You can hold anything in it because, it, you know, it's, it, it will take any shape you like, right? So that's very well cured yak hide. But you really get that butter into it, right? But he said, there's, an, there's another way of doing this. You get that same piece of yak hide, and you just slap some butter on it on the surface and just rub it around a little bit and then leave it. What happens to the yak hide is because you've introduced the butter on it, but you didn't get it in, really saturating the yak hide, then it crusts on the surface of the yak hide, and it ruins the yak hide. And that is the whole piece of yak hide or leather gets brittle. And once that's happened, you can't do anything with it. You can't say, oh, whoops, I'll bring some more yak butter in, because you bring more yak butter in, and then the yak hide just breaks. It just fragments into little pieces. In other words, you've completely ruined that piece of leather. If you've not touched it, then somebody could have later come along and, and really rubbed the butter in, and then still have a good piece of yak hide. But by putting a little smear on it, and then not working it in, you ruin it, and now it's useless. Okay, That's nomadic wisdom. Then to, there's the analogy. Now, what's he referring to? He said there are people who will study Dharma, study Buddhism, and they may study for a year, they may study for 10, 15, 20 years. And I mean really study. Memorizing texts, maybe debating the texts, studying, looking commentaries, sub-commentaries, really, you know, really, and then learning Prajnaparamita, Madhyamaka, and Vinaya, and Abhidhamma, and the lower tantras and the higher tantras, and epistemology and everything, and then maybe debating everything. So they, man, they've really, they've really become, you know, they know a lot of dharma. And they don't practice at all. They just study. They study, think, study, think, study, think, debate, debate, debate. Studying without practice can just ruin your mind. Like the you just slapped a little bit of dharma on the surface. But then what can come out of that is, if anybody who comes say, oh, would you like to meditate? Oh, I've, I've memorized several texts on meditation. 
I can, in fact, I can teach you. You want to debate? Because <laughs> I know all the commentaries, and I know this tradition and that tradition. Uh, let me teach you. I don't need to learn from you. I, I've already studied that. I've thought about it. I've debated. I, I won all the debates. I know exactly how to meditate. I can tell you. Just sit down, and I'll tell you. Mine totally brittle. Bodhicitta, oh yeah. There's multiple kinds of bodhicitta, 18 types of bodhicitta, actually. And these are laid out over five paths and 10 bhumis. Uh, which one do you would like for me to tell you about? Have you ever practiced it? What? What? Practice? Right, I studied. This is a degenerate time, by the way. So nowadays, you can just study. You can't really practice and gain realization. <laughs> Pretty sad, eh? So that's what he's talking about. So on the one hand, if one doesn't study at all, one may be like a rudderless ship. You know, No real clear direction, no view that supports it, no clear motivation. You're just setting sail and then going around in circles. You may know some techniques, but no real direction, no worldview that supports it, no larger vision, no deeper aspiration, no dedication of merit, no nothing. You're just kind of like, you know, like a rat in a maze. And that would be meditation with no theory, with no understanding of what's the point, what's the bigger picture, what's this all about, right? But if you're just studying what it's all about but never doing it, then it can actually be going backwards because it makes your mind more impervious to actual instruction and practice. So Tsongkhapa's advice here, he being an, a great scholar, his advice as a, as a man of prodigious intellect, incredible intelligence and erudition, who spent so much of his life studying, but also then teaching, but then also spent years in retreat. He said, study something, whatever it is, whatever it is you're drawn to, or your teacher encourages you to study, you know, if you, have, if you have a guru, study. But then as soon as you study some area, then before you've moved on, extract the essence and put it into practice. You study Prajnaparamita, good. Study it, learn it well, hearing, thinking, and now Take it right under the meditation cushion. Practice it. You want to study something else? Good. Study it. Now practice it. Don't let 5, 10, 15, 20 years go by. I've seen it happen many, many times among Asians and non-Asians that they'll study for years on end with no serious practice except for maybe some liturgy, just reciting stuff, and maybe some external prostrations, you know, some calisthenics, maybe devotion, maybe not a whole lot. But no deeper meditation, no really implementation. There's a word, lala and darwa, putting it into practice. None of that. So that can be very problematic. So that was Tsongkhapa's way. He encouraged broad learning so that you have a great deal to offer from your learning. You can draw from many sources. But he says, keep on coming back. As you expand, keep on coming back to the center, coming back to the center. It's almost like expanding into knowledge and coming back to the practice, expanding a knowledge, coming back to the practice. So then you're weaving, 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 and then, then, then you can really, then you turn out like that, well, that well-treated piece of leather. And then you're good for all kinds of things, right? I'll give one other, one other story. This was, this was advice given to me personally by one of the tutors of his Holiness Dalai Lama. Incredible, oh, incredible Lama. So loved by everyone who knew him. Uh, he was just the classic sage, but he was also the classic bodhisattva, and he was also the classic yogi. He was all of those. And they chose him to be one of the two tutors of the Dalai Lama for very good reason. You know? 
And so I met with him a number of times. And I don't remember the exact context, but I do remember the advice that he gave. And he, like His Holiness, when I first met His Holiness one-on-one, -on -one, he immediately went to the analogy of food, that studying and, and practicing Dharma is like food, like eating. I won't elaborate on what His Holiness told me, but this is with Tijan Rinpoche, and he came also back to the food analogy, because it's really so strong. Uh, and he said, he said this. He said, there's some, be, some people who are, let's follow Tsongo, I don't remember the exact order, but some people more like the, with the, the mindset or the, the appetite for learning. They're more like a Sakyapadita or an Atishu or a Tsongkhapa or a Longjam Rabjamba who just have this vast erudition. You know, they're just like, wow, how could anybody know that much? You know? So there's some people who have the, the ability and also the aspiration to gain a lot of learning. And he said, for such people, then when it comes to practice, and they really are very sincere, they're not just looking for a lot of knowledge, but they're getting that knowledge to put it into practice, getting a lot of knowledge so they can serve many people with different dispositions, inclinations, desires, and so forth, so they're not just helping people just like themselves with the same temperament. They can help a lot of different kind of people with different temperaments, right? That's why broad learning. Uh, and he said such a person will gain this broad learning, and then when it comes to practice, then what's dished up, what's dished up, as one maybe receives also very detailed instructions on shamatha, vipassana, stage regeneration, the six perfections, the stage of completion, texture, the six yogas of naropa, the six yogas of, of niguma, and poa, and, and so forth, that as you serve this banquet of dharma to be put into practice, he said, there you are, it's kind of like being served this tremendous banquet with multiple courses, and you sit down, and then you eat it, and when you finish the meal, you feel satisfied and well-nourished. Okay, that's, that's door number one. Okay, that's one possibility. But very elaborate. But sooner or later, you're coming and you're sitting down and you're chowing down. And when you finished your meal, you're full, you're satisfied, you're well-nourished. Yeah? Not everybody's like that. Some people are certainly interested in getting, getting some learning, some study, but not so vast. They want all of the study to be pretty close. Not, never, no, don't stray too far away into theory and philosophy and cosmology and the more esoteric topics. Teach me, but keep it pretty close to the practice because life is short and I don't have a lot of time for study, but I really, really want to practice. And so for such people, they may get oral instructions, detailed oral instructions on like, for example, the seven-point mind training, a guide to the Bodhisattva way of life, uh, Nag Nagarjuna's a letter to a king, or his Ratnavali, Jewel Garland, uh, and other really core practice texts, the Lamrim text, Jewel Ornament of Liberation, Words of My, of my Perfect Teacher, the Lamde teachings from the Sakya tradition, and so forth. But all of these are really practice-oriented, right? Really practice-oriented. And then getting instruction on the basic teachings for Noble Truths, the Six Perfections, whatever specific aspects of, of Vajrayana you want, you're drawn to, maybe Dzogchen, so the teaching not nearly as elaborate, and they're more tailored for you. And the teaching's all oriented towards leading right to practice. And so he said, Captain Jinnarmachu told me, this, that approach, this is like receiving a really nice meal with maybe an appetizer, a nice main course, a nice dessert. Nothing nearly as elaborate as the last one. Maybe that was 11 courses. 
But this one, nice meal, well balanced. Appetizer, main course, nice dessert, something to drink. And when you're finished, you're full, you're satisfied, you're well nourished. Right? And then he said, but not everybody's like that. Some people are not really that interested in study. They really just want to be a yogi. They really just want to be hardcore meditator, straight. So for those people, if they are to be really effective, then they, it's very especially important. It's important for all three, but especially important for this one. They find a really good teacher. Teacher has more than academic knowledge, more than just being articulate, really practitioner, real realization, and enough knowledge. And the knowledge is sound. So in other words, this person is a qualified, really qualified teacher, guru. And then the student should come to this teacher and say, please give me mengak. And mengak is quintessential guidance, quintessential practical instruction. I don't have time. Maybe I'm 20 years old, but I'm feeling the, I'm feeling the clock ticking of impermanence. And I know that even though I'm 20 and I'm in good health, I could die tomorrow. I have no time for anything excess, only time for essential. So please give me just what is essential, and I will practice that day and night. I will not waste your time, but just give me the essential. Okay. And then the guru just gives them transmission, oral teachings, here it is. Here, now go practice. And then come back. Okay, you ready? Okay, here. Like spoon feeding a baby. Okay, here's the next. Got it? Clear? Good. Go practice. Like that. Hardly any knowledge around that. This person, Gyapji Jijin Rinpoche told me, this is person like who gets one nice bowl of tzampa <laughs> with maybe some cheese in it and some radish, a bit of veggie and some enzymes, radish that grows at about 10, 12,000 feet. So there's your nice bowl of tzampa with some good butter tea and of course, what would tzampa be without butter tea? Pretty dry, actually. <laughs> and you have some nice cheese, some nice dry cheese in it, you know, maybe grated up, and a couple of radishes on the side. So you got your protein, you got your fat, you got your veggie. Why not a little dried apricot on the side? One of those little rock ones they have from Ladakh. And that's it. But it gives you enough. And you chow down on that, and when you're finished, you're full, you're satisfied, and you're well nourished. Okay, so all three of them. But the enlightenment that you get is the same. Whether you went elaborate, medium, or concise, the realization, realization of emptiness can be the same. Bodhicitta, same. Stage regeneration, completion, textuate tutkil, same. So they're all good, but they're all integrated. Whatever teaching you receive, you always put into practice. And if you don't, you'll wind up like that useless, broken, shattered, crumbly piece of leather. No good to yourself, no good to anybody else either. And that's getting so close. It's quite, that's kind of the only one that's really sad here. Because you get so close. It's like a starving person coming into a gourmet restaurant and memorizing every page of the, of the menu and never ordering a meal. It's pretty close, but not close enough. Yeah. Time for another one if there's something on the right. Oh, oh, we haven't heard from Bruce for a while. Carry on. 
when I came into the hall this morning for our group session, sat down, the first thing that came to me was that shamatha really cannot be achieved. That's not the way it works. And there was this, ah, ah, just kind of space and little relief and sense of freedom. Uh-huh. And um, there are a number of levels and... Uh, Rebuttals? Levels of, level. of that. I mean, in the first week, you responded to a question that there are no people that you know of here in contemporary West who have achieved shamatha, so on, maybe on the relative level. What my question is, uh, there is this... Did you see the context for that statement? Excuse me? Did you see the context for that statement? The context? Hardly anybody's practicing, and there's hardly any places to practice. And there's yes, hardly oh, I remember teaching. that very well. Yeah, so that... Absolutely. I think it needs, it actually, it needs that footnote, because yes. otherwise it can sound like, ah, oh, they were right, this is such a gen- degenerate era, why should we even bother to try? Uh, yeah, And sure. that would be a false implication. Yeah, yeah. agreed. So there's this rich field of... Uh, achievement and the relatives like effort and goals and expectations. Yeah, right effort being part of the all of that. Right effort being part of the Eightfold Noble mm, Path. Well, that too. Yeah, results. So all of these family are gathered in that field. I wonder if you would just maybe explore that a little bit with us. And, and one more metaphor. A couple of days ago, I was reflecting on this achievement, and it came to me that it's a little bit like compost. And if you put too much compost on a plant, it gets very green and leafy and has small or no fruit. Mm-hmm. If you don't put enough, it usually sprouts up pretty well, but gets leggy, long, sometimes a little yellow and susceptible to cutworms and things. You put the right amount on, of course, it grows nicely, has fruit and so forth. So. What about this achievement? I know it's a big topic, but... Yeah, uh, that's an important topic. And it happens very often in the modernization, the popularization, and the secularization of Buddhism that babies are being being thrown out right, left, and center with the bathwater. And that is... And and nobody has a monopoly on this. I've seen this in the modern Vipassana movement. I've seen it in popularized Zen, and I've seen it in popularized Tibetan Buddhism. So I'm not pointing any direction in any particular direction pointing my direction in all directions. And of course, all of these have authentic practice too. But it often happens in the popularization that all notion of attaining anything is thrown out. And even the notion of attaining anything, of achieving anything, becomes an object of ridicule. Oh, you're dualistic, you're grasping, you're this, you're that. And then people are disparaged and totally discouraged from having any notion whatsoever of achieving anything. No, it's just be here now, be accepting, embracing all of yourself. Embracing everything, being accepting, uh, you know, open presence, unconditional, bare attention, and so forth and so on. Um, I'm afraid a lot of get babies get thrown out with that bathwater, because that's not what the Buddha taught. I mean, it just it just isn't. There's just it's indefensible. When the the Buddha speaks of achieving marga, achieving stream entry, once return or non-return, achieving it nirvana. There's for the Pali Canon, for the whole Mahayana, perfecting the six perfections, achieving the five paths, the ten bhumis. There's that. And even in Zen, not popularized Zen, not pop Zen, but Zen in some of these really hardcore monasteries back in Japan, Korea, and so forth, the discipline is intense. These monks especially, they tend to be mostly male. They go through a very intensive training. 
they study well, they have a very strict discipline, they're practicing. They're, if, it, if, it's, if it's Rinzai, they're, being, you know, they're, they're having their, their regular interviews, working with their koans. This is not for nothing. It, and, and then you progress through the koans. You've achieved that one, you've realized that one, and now move on to the next koan, and so forth and so on. In Soto, the path is much more, how do you say, not defined, not having a lot of steps. But nevertheless, there is such a thing as having realization in Soto Zen as well. And it is something aspired for. All one needs to do is go to Dogen. Don't go to the popularizers, the beat Zen, the hip Zen, and all of that. Go to Dogen. Go to Dogen and see if there's any notion of achieving something in Zen. Go to Chinese Buddhism. There is all over the place Chinese, Zen, Theravada, Indian Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Mongolian Buddhism. So it's fine if one wants to throw all of that out. But one needs to know when it's starting a new sect of Buddhism, because it has no precedent prior to the 20th century. Having said that, so I want to make that, because it happens a lot, and so much is lost. It's just sad. Um, it's not like I'm standing in judgment, oh, you're bad people. No, just, oh, you could have had so much more. And what, why does this happen? It's like the, the theme of being non-judgmental in mindfulness. That theme, which is so strongly emphasized, is coming up for a very good reason because we're so intensely judgmental. So it's such a ubiquitous tendency, like an illness of the mind, being severely judgmental towards ourselves, giving rise to low self-esteem, judgmental towards others, giving rise to hostility and craving and so forth. Oh, it's a major disease. So we know being judgmental, oh, terrible, terrible. But now the way to throw the baby out with the bathwater is suspend all judgment. Whatever comes up in the mind, well, don't, don't show any discernment. There's nothing good, there's nothing bad, nothing wholesome, unwholesome. Just be present with whatever and let it be, as if that's a whole of a Dharma practice. There's no school of Buddhism that teaches that. I totally know. Baby out with the bathwater, right? So it's an extreme of finding, yes, you've identified a real problem, but don't remedy that problem by introducing another problem of releasing all sound judgment and wise discernment. And likewise, don't, and then here we are, in this individualistic, ego-driven, hedonically mesmerized society that is so full of goals and ambition and fists and competition and so forth. And then we bring that attitude into Dharma. It's death on wheels. It really, it's really self, self-destruct. And this is why in this retreat, such an emphasis from the, from the beginning, in the middle, and the end, releasing all of that, releasing into relaxation, relaxation, relaxation. So there's a real problem also, this goal-driven, which also always has a big ego behind it. I don't have, I want to achieve, and so forth and so on. And so to that mind, to that mind that is totally caught up in hedonic strategies of going from here to there and acquiring that, if then you slip in, oh, here's, here are nine stages to shamatha. Say, oh, good, let me add them. We roll up our sleeves. Okay, how many do I have to achieve and how fast can I achieve it? So we can apply the same problems of the hedonic world and bring that right into Dharma, and the same problems arise. Frustration, low self-esteem, achieving, pride, arrogance, and so forth and so on. But to recognize the problem, let's not remedy the problem with another problem. OK, there's no achievement. Nobody achieves shamatha. Not, can't, can't, can't be done. Can't be done. Um, then, if, then, OK, why should we stop at shamatha? OK, shamatha can't be achieved. OK, OK, whatever. Of course, we don't know that, and the fact that I'm not going to actually say, I mean, there's something I just keep, kind of keep private. But if you think that I don't know anybody who's achieved shamatha, you're wrong. Okay? 
In other words, people nowadays, living today, do I know anybody who's achieved shamatha? The answer is yes. So there we are, just to make that clear. What their ethnicity is, who cares? How many, whether it was Chitra, or whether it was Lakshmi, or whether it was Joao, or whether it's Joe, who cares? A human being, that's all the only thing that care, matters. That's the only thing that matters. I don't care what their ethnicity is. Right? So the people who have achieved it, they put the causes and conditions together, and they did it. But what we're really talking about here, as our time runs out, you raise a very important point, um, and that's balance. So here, B. Allen Wallace, balance Wallace comes back again. You know? <laughs> but it's not something I have to make up. It's core traditional Buddha Dhamma. Once again, let's go back and map those eight, that Eightfold Noble Path onto the three higher trainings. And recall, recall for the, the, I'll just use this finger, for the, uh, for the middle training of the higher training of Samadhi, out of the Eightfold Noble Path, three factors fit into that pocket. Right? Right or authentic, mindfulness. Right, authentic, Samadhi, which is real concentration here. And the third one, right or authentic, effort. And, that, and this is straight, but, and then we see this theme, virya, virya in Pali, the theme of effort, of energy, and whatever. It's among the five powers. It crops up all over the place in the Buddhist teachings. But wherever it crops up, it's always with find the right amount. If it's too little, you're going to be slack. You're going to be gushy. You're going to be mushy. You're going to be complacent. And that's not a path to enlightenment, nor is it a path to happiness. It's just going to be swimming in the tide pool of samsara forever. So too little effort isn't going anywhere. Too much effort, everybody, we all know about that one. It drives you crazy. At least it makes you get you stressed out and exhausted. And so not too much, not too little. So here in that middle domain of the higher training in samadhi, of course, it's not just about concentration. It's about cultivating the four measurables, developing renunciation, developing bodhicitta, and so forth, if it's in the Mahayana category. Uh, but it's de about developing exceptional mental balance extraordinary mental health, and these three factors play a crucial role so that your mind becomes a suitable vessel for the highest training, the training in wisdom. Right? And so these three, well, the two things to be balanced, so to speak, are effort on the one hand, we all know what it's like, so we don't need a definition, and the other one is that unification of the mind, the samadhi, the samadhi. Now when you're in kind of samadhi, when you're in flow, because that's when the mind really becomes unified. Okay? When you're in flow, not necessarily first, second, third, fourth jhana, but just like stage four, stage three, you're getting into flow. When you get into flow, and a number of people here have experienced that already, when you get into that, the very, easy, very easiest thing to do is feel complacent. It's flow. It feels really good. That, maybe not blissful, but it feels good. And it doesn't take much effort. And it's smooth, and, can, and you like it to continue. And you just want to remain there. You don't really want to get off the cushion. right? And now you're getting the, the taste of samadhi. If you stay there, you will stagnate. And if you're just remaining there in the flow of mindfulness, but without sharpening your introspection, which is a derivative of prajna, or intelligence, then as you just enter into that sweet flow, not exercising your intelligence, not exercising or refining introspection, samprajanya, just maintaining the flow of mindfulness. 
you become stupider and stupider and stupider. Because the muscle of intelligence is not being used. And the muscles of the mind atrophy just like muscles of biceps. So it's not just samadhi. That's not enough. That can just go into complacency and into withdrawal. It's not just effort, because we know what that does. That just ties us up into knots. So between those two, within this little trio, it's mindfulness that sustains the balance between samadhi and effort. It's mindfulness. And then it goes deeper, 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 deeper. You achieve shamatha, you want to go beyond that, achieve the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, whatever you like. But it's the right amount of effort, but it's also knowing the overall trend, as we see so explicitly in that winding path of shamatha with the nine stages, is that comparatively speaking, relatively speaking, the greatest effort is needed at the beginning. And then less and less and less and less. Right? As you get to be a well-oiled machine, to use a terrible analogy. Right? Now, a lot of you, judging by your conversations with me, you are now finding why a lot of effort is needed. It's never just, okay, just try. I don't, none of you have ever heard me say in any of our conversations, well, just try harder. I never said that. Probably won't, unless it's a joke. But when you're encountering the emotional upheavals, difficulties in the body, desires coming up, just having to deal with all the rumination, wondering, will this ever end? Take some effort. Take some determination. Take some perseverance to not just give up. And it's the most needed at the beginning. And then as you start getting more adept at it, and more adept at it, and more adept at it, then that overcoming that big hump of, man, this is hard. Am I getting anywhere? I don't think I'm getting anywhere. I think this is just fatiguing. I'm just frustrating. I'm no good at this. My mind is relentless. It beats me up all the time. Oh, and my body doesn't feel good, and I can't sleep very well. Oh, I thought I'd have fun in Phuket. <laughs> Why didn't you say, come to Phuket, be miserable? Take some effort. Take some effort. But the more adept you become in the practice, the easier it becomes, the less effort needed. So there it is. Can a shamatha be achieved? The answer is yes. Absolutely. But then some of us may not wish to phrase it that way, which is perfectly fine. If we don't find such an affinity or resonance with the developmental model, how about the other one? Discovery model. So whether a shamatha can be achieved or not, who knows? But could it be discovered? Is the nature of my awareness, when it's not entangled in grasping, is the nature of my awareness still? When I'm not cognitively fused with delusion, laxity, and sleepiness, not, not delusion, dullness, dullness, laxity, sleepiness, when I've not cognitively fused with that, I don't need to develop the brightness, the luminosity of awareness. It already is luminous. So all I need to do is unveil it. So all I need to do is unveil this brightly shining mind, this pabasa citta, brightly shining mind. That's all I need to do is unveil it. And all I need to do is release all grasping, and then I will discover that the, this bhavanga, this brightly shining mind, is by nature still, by nature luminous. And I will see, oh, I had shamatha all along, but I was so caught up attending to other things that I never tapped into it. Silly me. Why didn't I try to discover it earlier? Because my whole life would be different. I'd be so much happier 
and everything I wanted to do, I could apply to it a serviceable mind rather than that one that I've been using. Okay? Good. Well, lasso. Enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow. <laughs>